welcome to Biota Live. I'm Tom Barbelay, and this is a continuation of the Biota Podcasts. For more information on the Biota Podcasts, check out biota.org slash podcast. We have a caller on the line. I believe it's Bruce Damer. Hello, Bruce. Hello, Tom. Good to talk to you. I think we've, we've both been overseas over the past uh, month and a bit, and we haven't had a chance to talk until now. So I'm looking forward to getting into this evening's discussion, which is with regards to the contemporary Evo grid. But before we start, I have a, a few news and notes to go through, and then we'll get into this evening's topic. So unfortunately, uh, while I was away in Australia, I found out that the company I worked for in, in Las Vegas had closed unexpectedly. And as I'm an artificial life hobbyist and biota is just a hobby of mine, I've uh, decided to spend time looking for work, um, which means that there'll be a delay in the frequency of the biota lives as they come out in the near future. I have to apologize to the community for this, but also thank the folks that have already been in contact with me with regards to, uh, you know, finding work and these kind of things. So thanks to the folks who've already gotten in contact. What I will be doing, however, is recording sporadic biota lives like the one this evening. This is being recorded early Sunday evening. Uh, so we may try different times and uh, days uh, to see if we can fill the biota live stream. And also, uh, as Bruce had offered and as others have offered as well, I'll certainly accept um, talk audios, conference audios, lectures, these kind of things to put in the biota feed while we have a a shortage of actual biota lives. So, Bruce, I know you're going to be doing at least four major talks in the next month with regards to the Evo grid. I'm assuming you're going to record all of those. Yes, indeed, and, and they'll be available to, to Biota Podcast. Terrific. And if other folks are, uh, you know, if the folks at Graytham or these kind of meetings uh, want to record the audio or if other folks want to just submit audio where they're talking about their project and asking for feedback. All these things are options with regards to uh, the Biota podcast feed. So please feel free to submit audio to me, tom at noble8.com, over this period, and I, I look forward to taking all submissions and we'll put them in the feed. So just before I um, got on this evening's show, I was checking through the iTunes-related reviews, and we got a particularly uh, hostile iTunes review on the U.S. iTunes store. Uh, folks can check it out who have access to the U.S. iTunes store. But I think the important thing through all of this is that we do have a lot of listeners, a lot of devoted listeners, and, and thanks out to the, the broader community that are listening in. But for folks who are going to discover Biota Live and the Biota Podcast series, iTunes may be one of the ways that they can find out. So please go to biota.org slash podcast and click on the iTunes link. And if you feel so inspired, please do leave a, a review about what you get out of the Biota podcasts and what they mean to you in some way to, to quell the kind of reviews that are being left currently with regards to the podcast. So, Bruce, you've been on a, a, a hectic world tour. I was looking back at the history of the Evo grid, Bruce, and if we can kind of cast our mind back to about a year ago, you were talking at Grayson, Boston. For folks who are familiar with that kind of history associated with the Evo grid, what remains the same in terms of what you were talking about at Grayson Boston with regards to the contemporary EvoGrid project? Well, the, the initial EvoGrid idea was uh, that we, we could either create some kind of common protocol where artificial life simulators could send objects back and forth, creatures and plants and environments, 
or we could create some kind of universal underlayer. And the, the point of the EvoGrid was to kind of get things moving in artificial life. The idea being, if you develop independent A-life uh, systems, they only go so far, usually limited by the energy or the, uh, the, the funds or the time that the person who's developing an individual system uh, can put into it. And then suddenly uh, the project kind of stalls out or, or alternately the complexity of the system that they have, they have developed is low, low enough or the physics is, is not rich enough that the complexity uh, gets more significant. So they reach a, a peak of complexity and the system never generates more behavior after that. So you've got the problem of, of kind of maxing out a life, uh, what a life systems show. And so the idea of the evil grid was one way to, to get over that problem is to, to network them all together so that they uh, communicate and you get a richer total environment. The second was to build what I called at the time evil grid deep, which is to make something that is a common, uh, a common soup, if you might, might think of it that way. And in terms of what you've described with regards to kind of projects maxing out and also an understanding of complexity, I mean, these are, these are two issues that we've also discussed in Biota Live, one relating in some regard to the, the quality of life, but also the maintenance and continued maintenance of projects. And also on the other side, something which I've talked most recently, obviously, with Zan Gill about, the kind of philosophy that is associated with artificial life and the, the kind of meta-theories need to be strengthened and matured in such a way that we can explain these complex systems and actually utilize that in, in some kind of positive movement into the future, artificial life as being part of some kind of broader simulation science. So, I mean, in tackling these questions with the Evo grid, you've, you've described the way that the similarities that exist with regards to the project a year ago. But, I mean, just kind of going through all the places that you've been in the past couple of months, starting with Flint in particular, can you describe Flint and you, can you describe the, the feedback that they gave to you with regards to the Evo grid? Yes, and, and there was a precursor to Flint, and before I get to Flint, uh, as the listeners may know, many of them may know, uh, both Tom and I were involved in Richard Gordon and Joseph Seckbach's book, uh, which has come out in the last few months, called Divine Action and Natural Selection. And we both wrote chapters for that book, and it's really a compendium of thought about you know, the dialogue between science, faith, faith and evolution. Uh, creation, how did creation happen? Did it happen on its own? Did it happen because of a deity, a, a guiding intelligent hand, etc., etc.? Is sort of one of the great dialogues of our time. And in this book, Dick wrote, I wrote a chapter called uh, The God Detector, which you can kind of guess what that would be about, the engineer's approach to oh, those who believe that God influences every step of our lives. If God does do that, then you should be able to build a detector to detect God. But Dick's chapter uh, was about uh, Hoyle. Uh, this is the physicist Fred Hoyle, uh, his his theory about the tornado going through a junkyard of parts and a 747 getting assembled, uh, or his, his, his comment, his sort of humorous comment about it. And what Dick posed is he said, look, you A-lifers, what you really need to be focusing on is an, is an origin of artificial life. You need to be 
not going in and creating systems that you think have lifelike properties by building some bodies and building some genotypes that make phenotypes, but by starting from scratch, where you start from basic elements, keep your hands off the system, and let an origin occur on its own. Not messing around playing intelligent designer or god, or an artificial god, as, as Douglas Adams would describe it, but letting the origin of artificial life occur. So I got fixated on this challenge that Dick made and actually wrote in my chapter saying, by the way, Dick's chapter later in the book is what I think the Evil Grid project should take on. And at about the same time, the book Protocells was coming out, and Protocells really described all the research of groups around the world that are trying to make chemical primordial cells, vesicles, out of my cells, fatty molecules coming together and making these, these vesicles or vesicles, um, putting RNA into solution and seeing what it does, um, and trying to do things from chem uh, in, in chemistry, which is known, Mark Bedeau's terminology, is wet artificial life, whereas in software it's, I guess, soft artificial life. Um, there's an artificial life movement called hard artificial life, which is more akin to robotics. And so all this was going on, and I was fortunate enough in London in February on Darwin's birthday, I was doing a presentation on the Evo Grid, which was evolving toward a, a, an artificial origin of life challenge. I met Martin Hanzik uh, through uh, Rachel Armstrong, who pulled all these people together out of the A-Life 11 conference in England and pulled them into a seminar on the February the 12th at the University College London Bartlett School and met Martin Hanzig, who came from Steen Rasmussen's lab in Denmark, in southern Denmark, who had just gotten funding over several years to make protocells. And in fact, Steen was, the, I believe, the editor of the protocells book. And Martin said, why don't you come visit us? And I was like, okay, what's the cheapest possible flight I can get on, on stingy Ryanair out of Stansted? And I got myself on this strange airline and took buses, trains, and planes to southern Denmark and was able to look through microscopes at some of the things that they were seeing and looking at how difficult the bench chemistry is to try to make protocells and had a sit-down with, with Steen, certainly communicate with, with, uh, with uh, Martin and the entire group, and then had uh, luckily had 30 minutes with Steen. Now, Steen, for those of you who don't know, worked at Los Alamos, I think, for close to 20 years, was part of the original artificial life movement, and is, is a brilliant all-round guy and a really nice human being. Come back to his native Denmark, because they've got a five-year grant to set up this, this lab, Fundamental Living Technologies, I think, is the, what FLINT stands for. And he explained how hard it was to do this in chemistry from scratch. And I then explained what I thought the evil grid should be about. Fortunately, I had had a day before, a day of talking to the graduate students in FLINT, and one of them, and whose name escapes me, he's a French-Swiss, I believe, Jean-Pierre, explained to me literally an hour before meeting with Steen that the real challenge in this whole field is trying to figure out in chemistry how the chemistry ratcheted itself up 
and a ratchet being a mechanism in a gear that you, you move it one little level and it, and it holds itself at that level until you move it again. The ratcheting up of complexity in the chemical soup happening enough times that you get closer and closer and closer to what is a cell or what is something that could be called alive. And he showed me his work as a graduate student in trying to to grapple with this. And this is prebiotic. This is before the first cells. So the prebiotic ratcheting up of complexity, and I realized in a sort of flash of insight that this is actually the focus of the EvoGrid Deep. It's to create a simulator, not to create a lifelike system. That may be down the road, but to create an environment where you can observe the ratcheting up of complexity through these barriers where you could pummel the system with some kind of a shock if the system had somehow frozen up and, and had consumed all of its resources, which we do see in artificial life, and, and it would be able to ratchet up and come up with more complex forms and more complex ways of dealing with its new environment. Instead of one set of wiggly little things that always seem to be the same, you get the wiggly thing generation, then you get the, the longer wiggly thing, and then you get the things that are inside of containers, and then you just see this complexity of pre, pre-virtual biota. Certainly, but I mean, surely the challenge here is, as you say, prebiotic. So you're not even simulating things moving to weekly things. You're simulating things moving to single cells initially. And certainly, um, for folks listening in, I had the privilege to hear a lot of Bruce's audio. In fact, I think I heard all of the recorded audio from Flint. And what struck me there was that the the Flint folk uh, had a set of, in some regard, far more complicated problems than we ever have to consider in soft artificial life because obviously we can, you know, allow for things like energy and consumption and all these kind of things on a much higher level. But the things that they are dealing with, as Bruce kind of stated initially, is really considerably more fundamental in terms of actually how do you, you know, how do you create cells? How do you create things prior to cells? There's a whole notion of self-assembly, I mean, all these kind of problems in kind of chemical complexity or in a chemical soup seems uh, phenomenally difficult. And I'm interested in your your thoughts, Bruce, about whether you think what they're doing at Flint is actually, you know, orders of magnitude more complicated than the Evo grid or whether you want to move the Evo grid into being something that will, will solve these kind of problems for them. Well, here's how it unwound or wound up. The conversation, as you know, with Steen was intense. I mean, he's an intensely brilliant man and and already had thought through all of these things. So even in the 80s, he'd thought, thought through these things. So I was, he was saying, look, in, a, in, a, in, a, in chemistry, in wet, wet lab chemistry, what we are doing to try to get these protocells to form is absolutely tuning the environment. We're tuning the temperature. We're putting in the right ingredients. We're trying to think about catalysts. We're thinking about about surfactant, sort of oily, sticky molecules. And we're acting, in a way, as intelligent designers, trying to get this so close that we'll actually see something form. So one could ask the question, if you're having to work so hard to do this, um, was this ever likely? You're coming up with a really narrow scope. So that was one direction. It, it led me to believe that, yeah, the, 
computationally, they're having to grope around in the darkness all the time where they're saying, we don't know what's going to form. We can barely see what's there. We have a half a million dollar microscope just to look in a very tiny portion of this solution and try to see if anything's happened. It's very hard to understand what's going on down there. They have a computationally horrendous problem. Um, they don't know the parameters. They can't witness what's going on. And what, I, what occurred to me at that point was simulation is a light in the darkness. It's a light in the darkness for what they're trying to do. And if it, you based your EVO grid on real molecular dynamic simulators, rather than inventing something, you might help these people. And what Steen's comment was, he said, it's true. In the 80s and 90s, artificial life kind of invented its own universes. And so you could look at these properties of things coming out, but they were kind of, oh, that's in the invented universe. In the 2000s, it would be much more useful if simulations tried to, to mock or emulate real chemistry because it will help us. We need help. I mean, having Dick Gordon on the podcast and also my own reflection with regards to these kind of problems leads me to think that it's a bit like asking Isaac Newton to make an atomic bomb. I mean, we really, we are so far away from the necessary underlying theory and knowledge that to put a simulation out there, and ultimately I think we can strengthen the kind of simulation science, the metaphilosophy, while we're developing things like the Evo grid. But I think the challenge currently is firstly getting the wet artificial life folk to admit actually how little they know with regards to what they're doing. And you were very successful at that uh, when you were at Flint. But also similarly, the, the background biology, the background physics, I mean, you talk about molecular physics with regards to biological structures like it's, you know, um, 2,000 years old. I mean, I think certainly talking to Dick and the, the sense that I get talking with folks like Dick is that the knowledge associated with atomic and molecular chemistry leading towards biochemistry is not even in its infancy. I mean, as you say, it is in complete darkness. Now, this is, I'm, I'm, I'm jumping ahead slightly, but I think Freeman Dyson in your travels put this out to you very, very well with regards to his ideas of, uh, you know, really what you are doing is, is simulating the origins of the universe and then constructing from there in order to get to what he described as a garbage bag or a trash bag, and we'll get to that in, in some time. But I think this is exactly the problem. Just throwing simulation at uh, this kind of problem will not actually yield a meaningful solution or may not yield a meaningful solution without a good deal of kind of meta-simulation theory which doesn't exist currently. I think it's an interesting, it's kind of catch-22 in some regard, because what the folks are doing at Flint is, as you say, really kind of stumbling around in the dark with, with hopes that, you know, they'll, they'll find what they need to find. And the issues associated with uh, atomic and molecular simulation associated with biological systems may not actually yield the answers. I mean, I think this is, I was watching Peter Newman in parallel to uh, Bruce doing his tour has been writing a particle simulator and I've been watching the development of that in parallel. And I think looking at the particle simulation in, in particular, it strikes me that it's even, it's subparticles that you really need to be simulating with regards to these biological processes. I think of our, our mutual friend Lorenzo and his associated biochemist friends and the way in which they talk about 
uh, covalent carbon bonding and these kind of things, which is fundamentally subatomic, and the beauty and the structure that comes through these things. I mean, if you just start as a kind of atomic or even molecular particle level, you won't be able to get that kind of subtlety. So in terms of these kind of complexities, I think the, the challenge associated with the Evo grid is should we start in our current universe with our current knowledge? Should we create a whole series of additional parameters, which may be what, what Peter is doing as we're talking? Or should we start with something that's sufficiently abstract that will at least show the kind of emergence that we want to see and then map it backwards? And certainly... I didn't get the sense from your kind of conclusion at Flint. There seemed to be a question that was still open, and certainly reading your your recent um, writings as well, it still appears to be open. In terms of the, the your travels as being a, a meeting of a series of people and asking them, firstly telling them about the EvoGrid, and then asking them where they would think the problems would occur. I mean, what was what was the conclusion with regards to Flint in this regard, and? I mean, what did someone like Freeman Dyson do to that that whole perspective change? Well, Flint, the upshot was in a in a basically in a couple hour period. Not only did I talk to Jean Pierre and understand this ratcheting prebiotic challenge, but uh, Harold Fellerman, who's just finishing his PhD at Flint, showed me his uh, his simulator. I think he called it Spartacus or some some like like that. What that simulator did, all built open source with Python scripting, uh, it did a mesoscale biochemical simulation or, or molecular simulation where you're not modeling the individual atoms, you're modeling whole molecules. And he would run this for days and days and days, and then he built these analysis functions that would look in, look in the data or look in the matrix to look for membrane formation, virtual membrane formation. And then he would run a renderer that would just simply render a, a movie of the mesoscale particles moving around. And that struck me as, aha, that's exactly the model that I've been thinking of for the Evil Grid Deep, which is you run a massive amount of simulation, and then you, you can afford to look at a dump or a snapshot and look for patterns. And this is exactly what Fellerman was doing. And he was seeing these very simple membranes forming. So it was a very, very beginning of the process. But then when meeting with Steen, I realized, you know, I have 30 minutes to talk to Steen, and who knows when I'd see him again. And I said, the real insight here, because he knows all this. He knows about the ratcheting complexity problem, the prebiotic problem, simulation, and then simulating and dumping and looking. And he knows it all. He's been thinking about it all. It's been something he has been trying to get to since the 80s. I said, the real magic that we can bring here is two things. One is iterative looking. And at the time, I'm I'm still calling this an observer function. I know that Dick has a problem with how do you define that. That the system looks at its own state and decides in some way that there's more self-assembly or self-organization going on in a certain region or instance of the simulator and decides to follow that and allow more simulation nodes to occur around that particular mix and chases down, chases down uh, further self-organization in an automated fashion rather than looking at, visually looking at things and deciding, which is what the, the, the artificial life community has been doing for a long time. And when I said that, and I also said to, to Steen, and we can harness the Boink network at Berkeley, UC Berkeley, which does SETI at home and gene folding at home to harness 
you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of computers are petaflops of, of analysis because you can, just, you can get that if you can qualify something into their network. And I know one of the people who works on the, the network. And for a second, I saw Steen do what Malcolm Gladwell called blink, where he blinked and he went quiet and he said, that's it. That's the answer. That's how to do this. And I knew, okay, it's done. He's, he's seen that this is worthwhile doing, and of course this has been done, but he sees a new technique that may actually work. And from that point on, he got quite excited and was saying, you're tackling one of the core things in artificial life research that I've been trying to, I've been thinking about for 20 years. It's just that I've never been able to get to it. And, and it is this issue of simulating the, the prebiotic ratcheting and showing, in principle, how it works. So that, that was, the upshot of that was Steen wanted to work, work on the, uh, in some way, advising, supervising or otherwise supporting the effort. Certainly, and he also asked you to uh, chair a, a stream at Artificial Life 11 with regards to this exact problem, didn't he? Yeah, actually, Artificial Life 12, which will, 12, be, held, sorry. It will be held in Odense, the home of Hans Christian Andersen, uh, in uh, the summer of uh, 2010. So this, this is tremendous news because it allows us as a maybe even biota behind this, it's allows us to create a track, a modest track about this theme and start it as a subfield. It's always been there, but it should be officially started as a subfield within artificial life. 